This series is produced by the folks at Vic Health, Victoria's health promotion agency. One thing that really I really believe in and has has served me incredibly well is just to have the best possible people around you at all times. And if I have one great skill, it's not that I'm particularly talented at anything else, it's that I'm very good at putting and choosing exceptional people to be around me and those people make me look very, very good. (laughs) You're you're not a bad cook either, I think. Hello and a big welcome to In Good Health. I'm your host, Dr. Sandro. I'm a medical doctor, a public health expert, Vic Health CEO, and a foodie. Our very special guest today is none other than Ben Shuri. Ben is a New Zealand-born chef, father, and owner of the restaurant Attica in Melbourne, Australia. Since taking over Attica in 2005, Ben has earned a reputation for excellence and creativity. Attica has received several prestigious awards, attracted top chefs and visitors from around the world, as well as making the world's 50 best restaurants list for several years running. You might also know Ben from featuring on the Netflix series Restaurant Australia and, of course, Chef's Table. During the height of the COVID pandemic when restaurants were closing, Ben looked for new and inventive ways to keep Attica thriving and his workers employed. In today's episode, we'll call Ben and discuss his life and how it's changed since the pandemic began, the importance of resilience, and why we should always lead our lives with kindness. Let's give him a call. G'day, Ben. How are you going? Hey, Sandro. How are you? I'm I'm very well. I'm you know peak uh, peak lockdown. It's a bit of a tough time I know for everyone, but um, you're doing okay. I am. Uh, it's great to be here with you today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for making the time. You know, to say that the last eighteen months has been a roller coaster would be an understatement. When when the pandemic started, how did you feel? I mean, what what were your first thoughts? Fifteenth of March, two thousand and twenty. It was that was the D day, I suppose, for me. I it was my birthday, and I was trying to celebrate my birthday with my partner Kylie and my three children, Kobe, Ella, and Ruby. And it was a Sunday, and I just had this terrible feeling inside, like a like a knot in my stomach, because I thought that everything that I'd worked so hard for in my life um, was about to be taken away from me. I thought that I would lose my business and company and I was fairly certain of it actually that I'd convinced myself that that we would fail and um, because we were about to be ordered to close our dining room and cancel three months of worth of bookings. And what happened next? Well, I had that day of feeling sorry for myself uh, on my birthday and uh, it, it's a little bit unlike me to feel sorry for myself, but I... But I was absolutely despairing. And despite the best uh, efforts of Kylie and my kids to lift me up, even though I, I'm always pretty careful to, to hide my anxiety uh, and stress from my children, um, you know, I just I just was certain. I just couldn't believe that takeaway food would be able to save a fine dining restaurant with high prices that we charge. I just couldn't imagine that that would save our company and the more than 40 jobs um, that 
rely on this business for uh, their livelihoods. Um, so, you know, that's kind of how I went to bed feeling, you know, that night, like just sick, really deeply sick inside. And the next day I woke up and I'd received an email from a friend of mine from California, an entrepreneur called Bruce Dunleavy. And Bruce had a very, it was a three sentence email, which said effectively, uh, no matter what you do, Ben, lead with positivity and just let that be your guiding your guiding thing and you know you'll get through it so that that message combined with kylie's positivity and insistence made me thought well you know we don't have much left to lose we if we're going to go broke then we might as well go out swinging and give it a red hot crack and so that's what we did that day we made plans sort of immediately to to flip the business to something completely different, a brand new type of business that really wasn't anything like the business that we ran before. Uh, so we went from being a fine dining restaurant to being a takeaway uh, and delivery service, uh, making menus based on my favorite childhood dishes and some of the favorite historical dishes of Attica. And we just went all in on that. We We sat with the staff and we said, I said, listen, you know, if you don't want to do this, I understand. Uh, at that point in time, it felt a little bit dangerous even and very uncertain. And I said, we ever sat in the dining room and I said, if anybody doesn't want to do this, you know, if you collectively don't want to do it, then we won't do it. Um, and if you want to come to me privately and tell me that's fine as well, you don't have to say so in front of the group. And but everybody, without exception, wanted to do it more than anything. So we decided to do it together. What came next really was one of the most crazy periods of my life that I can ever remember. And it was really like the beginning of Attica in 2005 all over again. The, the, weight, of your, the weight on your shoulders at that point when you're trying to decide which road to take and whether you sort of, you know, try to bounce back and push hard and take the advice of that mentor must have been enormous. It was, you know, uh, because I don't come from much, though, like I haven't had very much financial help in my life and I've had to earn the things that I've worked for and, and I have. Um, I suppose I had, you know, I didn't have, I didn't really feel like I, you know, I didn't have anything to fall back on. You know, if this failed, then that was it for me. and. It's very hard to come back from a restaurant failure or any kind of business failure. You know, people talk about entrepreneurs, you know, failing multiple times before they're successful. But for me, you know, I'd been I'd, I'd been employed at a restaurant which went broke. I was a pastry chef at a restaurant which went broke, and it was a very terrible feeling. You know, that time I I felt responsible for it. Um, I came back after holidays to this venue, and my key didn't fit in the lock anymore. The security guard met me on the other side of the door, and that was the first time that I knew that that we'd gone broke, and I, you know, lost all of my holiday pay and my superannuation, and that uh, really. Um, but more than that, emotionally, I didn't cope well with that failure, and even though it wasn't my fault, I wasn't the owner of the business, but I felt like it. I took it on board like that. But that memory that was very much in my mind when I was going through that that sort of first week or two months 
uh, of COVID, that memory of failure. And I've always just had this sort of, I learned from that that failure. I learned that I never want to go back to that place. And, and I, you know, I, I really want to express that this was very much completely a team um, effort. Um, and a huge amount of the credit should go to Kylie Stadden, who's my partner, but also the operations manager here, mm. because I'm just one person. There are 40 other people here and her smarts on working out how to deliver food to people and the interface and the website and the logistics of doing food delivery, which frankly is a complete nightmare when you're not doing it with uh, an organisation. We do it for ourselves because we can't afford to lose a percentage off the price of our menus. Mm. And so, yeah. So take us through, because one of the things that's really what has struck me, Ben, about your your business, and I I knew of you living overseas. You know, everyone around the world knows knows of Attica. Um, even when I lived in Copenhagen, people talked about Attica from the other side of the world. But what struck me watching you over the last eighteen months is just your incredible resilience, your sense of community, your sense of humility, but just your grit. So can, can you take me through? Because, you know, in a, in a short summary, sort of what are the evolutions of Attica that we've watched you develop and launch? Because you've done soup, you've done summer camps, you've done bakeries, you've done the more lasagna than my nonna even did. I mean, <laughs> so, so just take us through that scope of pivots, because I then want to ask you some questions about that. Well, good. It's just it's such a blur. Um, you know, it's been, I don't even know where to start. I can't even remember everything we've done. Uh, it's it feels like uh, in a way it feels like a tunnel, but it also feels like being kind of tossed in the ocean as well. Like you know when you when you're body surfing or you're surfing and you get taken by a wave and it, it upends you and throws you in all kinds of different directions. And you don't really know where you are. There's definitely been moments of that um, and that kind of chaos. But sometimes you know I quite like that chaos if I'm being completely honest with you as well. I like that disruption. Um, I like sometimes the results that come from not being fully in control. How and do you stay calm? How do you stay calm and focused in in that in that wave, in that turmoil of the wave? I, I practice it. It's uh, something that you know I suppose I've been inflicting on myself in a way for many, many years. Uh, I, I like things, I like work, artistic visions that are natural and that don't feel forced or contrived. And I know from just doing, you know, dedicating my life to development, development of dishes and recipes and concepts, that the ones that were really thought out and really planned were often not the best ones. They often failed or they didn't work out. And the ones that were that were just discovered by a you know, happy accident those are often the most meaningful and the most direct. Um, so I do like a, a certain uh, level of sort of playful anxiety in my work and the ability to adapt very quickly. I, th I think really probably my ability to adapt and and survive comes from a farming life, mm. uh, watching my parents do it, you know, with very little money in the um, 70, late 70s and early 80s in New Zealand. And... Uh, and th there's sort of an accountability on the farm where it really is just you, the land, the animals, and nobody's going to save you. And that I just watched that for a decade as a child, watched my dad and my mum flog themselves physically and mentally. But the whole time, you know, 
totally in love with each other and 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 incredible parents and having a bit of fun as well even though they had very little financially they you know they had this wealth of kind of um spirit and mm. um and we had a wealth around the dining table as well but is that where is that where your sense of community and and also your resilience comes from? Do you think your 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 parents and growing up on a on a rural property in New Zealand? I think my parents are quite different. My dad is very gentle and very very artistic, very creative. He's a naturalist painter, landscape painter, and amazing artist. But he's he's very emotional. So I definitely have that side. You know, he's very easy to cry. I'm very easy to cry. He's very emotional. He's very creative. I'm very creative and very emotional. My mother is very direct and very driven. Um, and I get my drive from her and I get my grit from her. Um, and I get my kind, you know, never say die kind of attitude come from my mother, you know, who's had to overcome a lot to become successful. Um, so that those are that's probably, you know, the psychological breakdown of where I where I get the traits that I have and it's taken me some time to understand that. The last 18 months has been a huge demonstration of resilience and patience as we try to navigate the new normal. The disruptions of the COVID-19 pandemic can be seen across many industries in Australia and around the world. But the impact felt by the hospitality industry in particular is undeniable. The hospitality sector accounts for around 8% of Australia's jobs. But since the COVID-19 pandemic, the Australian Bureau of Statistics reported that 70% of businesses in the hospitality sector have had to reduce the hours of their staff, while 43% have had to either let workers go or place them on unpaid leave. So how did Attica manage to maintain success, creativity, and its employees. Ben is here to share his story. Tell me about the um, Attica Soup Project. How did that come about? The Soup Project came about because Attica, you know, at the at the start of the pandemic, um, had more than fifty percent of our labour force had moved there from somewhere else, including me, and they. So they were invited to live here by the Australian government, you know, on various different visas, work visas. And when the pandemic hit, it became apparent that they were going to be left out of any form of help from the government, any form of um, financial help. And that didn't sit well with me. That didn't speak to the Australia that I know that I that I love to call home, and uh, also didn't sit well with Danny Vallant, who's a food writer who lives in Ripponlea, where the restaurant is as well. And so we sort of came around to the same line of thinking at the time. I was concerned about what would happen to my star if Attica failed. You know, a lot of these international workers had come out here, made a life out here, and couldn't go home for various reasons, um, you know, whether it be no flights or no money or uh, or didn't want to because Australia was home. Um, so I felt like that was a, a weird thing, you know, it just didn't feel like didn't feel like the Australia that I know. And so we wanted to do something about it um, just to make you know a little statement about that, but also to support some people that we thought needed the help because a lot of people were being stood down in hospitality. And so it was a heap of hospitality visa workers out there who didn't have 
anything at all, no work and no food. And so we, we just started making soup and um, we would make a huge amount of soup each week and pass it out. And it led to getting many donations from people of food. And we were able to provide enough groceries, fruit and vegetables and other things for people to to survive off for a week. And we'd do it once a week in, in the building next to Attica. And we did that for six months. Um, and it was a really amazing privilege to be able to provide that for our fellow hospitality workers. Amazing experience. And we made a lot of good friends. And some some of the people that actually ended up coming to the soup kitchen now work for me, which is also really wonderful. But yeah, it was just a, you know, it was just like, well, I'm not a big one, Sandro, on um, complaining about something and pointing to a problem without there being some sort of solution to the problem or you know, I don't I don't criticize people directly. I I tend to sort of try to lead by example. Mm. Uh, I don't feel like you get change without uh, acting like that. And um, so that's sort of how I go. And this was that was what the soup project was about as well. It was, you know, we was filling a need in the community, but also um, to make a statement also about how um, we were treating our fellow people living in Australia. Positivity, one of the things that's really struck me, Ben, about your leadership is that positivity and kindness are so central. And you can you can see that when you speak, the way you talk to people, the way you interact, even the generosity of joining us today. Do you think, I mean, what role does positivity and kindness have in your own resilience as a leader? Well, you know, it's taken me some time to to learn, and it's not that I don't have those internal voices like we all do, but I um I definitely think being positive um, is important. It's also really really important if you're leading a team, and I know that from mistakes in the past that perhaps you know my leadership style from you know eight or nine years ago when things weren't doing going well in business, maybe I was a little too open with the financial problems of the business. And that influenced my team and it brought us all down a little bit. So I'm pretty careful about how much of my personal anxiety that I that I put onto the team um, because they have to do their job and, you know, you, you just want to support them and provide them the best platform to do their job that you can. In terms of your positivity and, and your resilience, what, what role do mentors and even your partner, those really close to you, play? Because, you know, even even positive leaders have hard days, and I'm sure you do like everyone else. But but what you've talked about your mentors, you've talked about your your business and 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 your your personal partner. What role do do those sorts of people have in in your life as a leader? You asked me about kindness, um, and mm. I think kindness is something that we could probably talk about all day. <laughs> but my understanding of kindness is starting to become full circle. Um, and I actually think that kindness is absolutely central and the single most important thing to a successful life. And I think it it seeps into every part of your life that you could be successful at kindness. And um, so I learn a lot about kindness because I because I'm fascinated by it. I find humans fascinating. I find people fascinating. And the only way that you could get really close to people is through kindness. Um, to observe them and their characteristics. And I've always been a great studier of other humans. And I think the thing about kindness is it's, you know, it comes from a certain place. And 
probably quite a lot of what we think of kindness is is actually just being nice, but it's not real true kindness, you know. So I think kindness for me, it comes from now as I've matured, it comes from a place of confidence um, and it comes without any, any expectation. And I think um, a lack of expectation or ulterior motives around kindness are, are what is actually central to true kindness. So by that I mean doing something nice for somebody or something kind for somebody and it could be anything, but not expecting anything in return. And so long as you lead with that, you'll never be disappointed, which is which is great um, for one. Um, but I've learned that by going that way, um, it's led me to some absolutely incredible experiences in my life that I can't even imagine um, having. And I could share one with you. Please do. One of my mentors and my close friends is a gentleman called Uncle Noel Butler. He's a Budawang Yuan man from the south coast of New South Wales. He's in his mid-60s. He's a Yuan elder. Um, he's the speaker of Durga, uh, one of only a handful of remaining speakers. His family, his people have been on their country for you know thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And he has intimate knowledge of the land, the animals, the ecosystem, everything that happens in that environment. And it's humbling the knowledge that he has. So I've been on country with Uncle Noel many, many, many times. So I was Kylie and with his wife, Trish, who just some of the nicest, kindest people that you ever meet. And I always, you know, I have to pinch myself sometimes when I'm having these experiences, even after so many times. I'm not a religious person, but some of the things that have happened on country with Uncle Noel, would, and it's not a very good description, but I would describe them as kind of a religious experience or as... I've said before in the past, undeniable, undeniable some of the things that I've seen because there's this intergenerational knowledge that Uncle Noel has that's been passed down and passed down. Some of the things are so ancient that um, you're actually sort of awestruck by them. For example, you know, the ability to choose the exact right type of timber that's symbiotic to the item of food that you're going to cook. So if it was a local fish that Uncle Noel had harvested at just the right time when certain flowers are blooming and in a very sustainable way, he would then choose a specific type of timber of wood to to cook that fish in um, because, and I've witnessed this, so, you know, you might think, well, what's in, you know, a different type of timber? Not much, right? Surely they're all burned kind of the same, but but they don't. So he once schooled me on his ability to cook a fish uh, in ash rather than embers. So he needed a piece of timber that would burn down to ash. I mean, most timber burns down to embers. And then he buried the fish in the ash and cooked it very, very slowly for about an hour. It was absolutely succulent, delicious, peeled the skin off so there was no ash on the flesh. Some of the things that I've experienced with him and, you know, our, as our relationship grew, our trust level grew, we knew that I come from a, you know, a respectful place he accepted my ignorance and my lack of knowledge and um and uh you know i've been on a tremendous journey with him and he, i count him as a very dear friend and after the bushfires that devastated his property him and uh you know trish lost everything their 100 acre rainforest property was perished in the fire and then all of uncle noel's artifacts and their home and the education center um we went up there soon after to help them replant some plants and they did a smoking a healing ceremony and uh 
you know, Uncle Noel asked me to join him in the ceremony, which is very, you know, unlike, uh, unusual. And um, when I felt so privileged to be in that position, I could not believe it. I, I, it's sending shivers up my spine talking about it now. You know, it's just like, wow, I came to this country as a foreigner. And, you know, 15 years later, here I am involved in an Aboriginal ceremony, which just felt like such a crazy privilege. And I think, you know, that all started because I was just kind to Uncle Noel, you know, without any expectation, you know, and he could he could sense that. And that was years before, you know, and um, and he's had a lot of unkind unkindness in his life. He's dealt with a lot of racism um, and it's, you know, and it's upsetting to, to know that. And uh, but um, he's a wonderful man. So I feel like, um, you know, not going just don't go into everything that you do with an expectation that you're going to get something in return. And if you do get something in return, what a nice surprise. That's amazing, Ben. I, I wanted to ask about, you You briefly talked about um, mentors. And, and I think for people listening, sometimes listening to someone like yourself who is a celebrated uh, chef and visionary and entrepreneur in so many ways, it can seem almost you know, out of touch or not you're out of touch, but it's sort of another world or, or it seems <laughs> impossible. And but but you are you're, you're such a human person. That's what really strikes me as well. That just the, the the humility and the generosity and the positivity that you have is is endless, it seems. But how do you how do you recharge that? I mean, how do you recharge your your creativity? Is it people? Is it experiences? Is it something deep inside? Is it a place? What what do you do to recharge your your, your batteries it's a little bit of all of that i think the thing is is that i've never forgotten where i came from i come from a humble background but i've never forgotten being a boy and having people invest in me before i was known for anything i was just a kid from the tiniest remotest speck on the planet you know a place called alkino where only probably a handful of other people lived i went to a school with seven students two of which were my my sisters and my mother was the school teacher. Lived a very sheltered, very isolated life and didn't have friends my own age. When I, I was a strange child, I wanted to be a chef from the age of five in lots of weird things like that. But I always been really lucky to to have people around me seemingly that cared. And that started happening to me from the age of 10 when people, I wrote a letter, you know, to do work experience at a restaurant and they re they returned my letter and I went and spent time in that kitchen. I mean, who would have a 10-year-old child in their kitchen? You know, that seems crazy in a commercial kitchen, the dangerous places. And I, um, you know, I've never forgotten that. I've never forgotten that those kind moments. And there's been multiples of them. When I was 21, I worked for the most inspirational man. You know, he had a, he was running a, the best restaurant in New Zealand. His name was Mark Limaker and he had four children and he was doing it. And I, one of them was crawling around the floor in the kitchen in my interview, you know, I just, you know, he was, he really changed the way, I, you know, I thought about food, you know. Um, I think um, staying open is super critical, you know, being open to, you know, both positive and, and you know, and, and criticism. Um, and just, um, I always think that, you know, I've, I, I probably always sought out men, mentors. I've always, understood the importance of having older, more knowledgeable people in my life to this day. And I have many, many, many mentors today. And 
it's a mistake to think that you, you don't have mentors when you become successful. I think, you know, almost felt like I needed them more than ever. And I have many people, there's, you know, more than a dozen people who are very significant who advise me and, and, and help me. And, um, yeah, but I've always, I've always sought them out and, and I'm very lucky that people have always taken an interest in me and gave me the time. You know, I had this really like by anybody's standards, really, you know, very low level job when I came out of chef school working in a hotel on a buffet and it wasn't pretty food. It wasn't glamorous food. It wasn't even particularly good food. But even in that environment, the chef um, saw something in me, a creative creativity in me. And he he said, Ben, you're going to be in charge of decorating the buffet. So, you know, I would go to work on the buffet, making sculptures out of margarine and corner coppers of fruit stuck on sticks that were, you know, four feet high. <laughs> and, you know, so even like, oh, it's always been like that. I remember, you know, working at Government House in Wellington and um, later and the kitchen hand um, was a Singaporean man called Roland Laupak Loon and Roland, you know, had been a fashion designer in Singapore and moved out to New Zealand and the stars didn't align in that way. So he became a kitchen hand and he was a very good kitchen hand and he was very, very knowledgeable about um, food, about Chinese food and Singaporean food. And so he became a mentor of sorts, you know, at Government House where he schooled me daily about my average, you know, Asian cooking, you know, um, <laughs> and he chastised me, you know. So I've always, every single step, I've always sought people out because I'm very interested in people. Mm. It's very, very fascinating. It's amazing. And, and clearly people who, who have both uh, challenged you but also given you the confidence or have channeled that, that energy as well. This podcast is brought to you by the team at Vic Health, Victoria's own health promotion agency. Just to finish up, um, it's been incredible to speak to you, as I always knew it would. But uh, I mean, every time we speak, I feel like we could, I'd love to just continue to listen for hours. But this question is from Josie. She asks about creativity. I really value having a creative outlet uh, from my normal job, apart from my normal job. Um, but with lockdowns increasing, I've noticed it's harder to find the energy and the motivation to be creative. How do you continue to be creative even when things get tough or stressful? Well, for, for a start, Josie, you know, take it easy on yourself. Um, you know, it might seem like from the outside that, you know, I'm this unlimited source of creativity. Uh, but in reality, I have far, far more failures than I do good ideas. I would say that it's a thousand to one, perhaps. But one thing is important is just to keep going. And I, you know, I have those blocks as well and times where I'm, I'm not feeling inspired. But my um, way of overcoming that is to actually just to keep working. And sooner or later, it comes back around and you come up with something great. So that's that's always served me well in the last 15 years. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. I really can't oh, emphasize how much we appreciate it. Uh, lovely to talk to you anytime. Thanks for listening to the In Good Health podcast. To find out more about the work that we do, head over to our website, vichealth.vic.gov.au. Oh, and make sure you check us out on social media under at VicHealth.